Last week, we did the first part of our second enemy, which is the devil. Satan is his name. And this week, we're going to do the second part, which really focuses on the impacts of what he does, how he goes about accomplishing what his goals are, and uh, the devices that he uses to implement and to bring those to fruition, or at least to try to. Uh, The first one of our enemies was what? When we talk about our enemies to who we are, to our identity, what was our first enemy? Our flesh. Yeah, it's the flesh. That's the part that's, that's us. It's the part of us that wants what we want. And we're going to let's do a quick goals interview. We'll read this verse and then we'll get into it. You can see this from John. Jesus is talking. And he says, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You're of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and a father of lies. And really that last verse that talks about his character and who he is is the part that I want to focus on in this lesson. That he was a murderer from the beginning. And he doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And we saw last week that the word Satan literally means adversary. And he stands in opposition to God, he stands in opposition to believers. And today we're going to see some of his goals and uh, some of the ways that he goes about trying to accomplish them. So let's look at this quick goal. We want to acknowledge them, not just to see what they are, but acknowledge them and realize that that is what they are and how that impacts us, and then to understand it. And the second part of it really is to think about two types of sin. A lot of times in life, we know what sin is, and we can start to maybe attribute some specific, some specific actions or inaction to it. Uh, but what is the best way to conceptualize sin? What does that got to do with that identity? Well, we want to conceptualize it that way today. We want to understand the phrases from 1 John 2, where he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These three things are all throughout Scripture, not just in, in, in 1 John, or not just in places that are listed. The, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The characterization, or the examples of these are throughout Scripture. We see somebody succumbing to the lust of the flesh, or to the lust of the eyes of the pride of life. And today we're going to look at three uh, examples of that in Scripture. Two of them are where Satan directly attacks people with the lust of the flesh, Less the eyes and the pride of life, and one indirectly. Uh, the next thing is we want to consider how we can intentionally support what God desires. I want you to think about that one because that's what this class is about. Uh, we've said many times that the goal of all knowledge is what? Application. It's application. It's not enough to know it, it's to do something with it. And so if you guys are like me and you're starting to understand who you are, in Christ, who you were before, what changed and what's new, and who you are, and the implications that carries that, how can we intentionally, meaning on purpose, proactively, support what God wants for us? How can we do that? Because that's really what the study is about. <coughs> the next one is to consider how we can stop unintentionally hindering what God desires. So there's a little bit of a juxtaposition there that we can proactively or intentionally support but then there's still part of us that sometimes unintentionally we fall in line with what Satan wants rather than what God wants. So how can we overcome these two things? 
And it's something that's maybe a little weird to think about is the role of demons in Scripture. A lot of times the Christians or spiritual people, religious people, will get fun of for you know, believing in angels or believing in demons, but it's a reality in Scripture. There's, there's a lot of truth there. And we're going to see what you know, some Scripture from Daniel shows us about both angels and demons. So a quick review before we get there. Walking in the newness of life means that we stop letting sin reign in us based on the power that comes from our position in Christ. Where's the tension? In us? There's a part of us that wants to do bad or to wants to do what we want, and then there's the Holy Spirit inside of us, and that creates a tension. That's part of the newness, and we don't have to obey the flesh anymore. We don't have to put ourselves back under its bondage. Because we're in Christ, our position is in Christ, we can overcome the desires of the flesh by walking in the Spirit. And utilizing that power that comes from our position can be difficult because of the flesh, which was our first enemy. Our human spirit, separate from the Holy Spirit, gives us the ability to relate to God. Okay, And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to walk in Christ, but the flesh pulls it to sin, which creates that tension and dilemma. And then last week we started Satan, who's our second enemy. He proactively appeals to our flesh through temptation, hoping that we will sin, hoping that we'll stay in sin, and forsake our fellowship with God. Let's think about this one real quickly before we get into it. When I say forsake your fellowship with God, what do I mean? So let's just, I don't know, let's just God's a spirit being, he doesn't really have a form or function, but just for illustration purposes. Okay, when a person believes in Christ, what happens in terms of their correlation with God? You're justified, okay? And what is that what does that mean? That you're justified. Means you have eternal life. You have eternal life, which is what? I'm not sure I understand. What is eternal life? Well, it's an eternal relationship. Okay, that's the word I'm looking for. So you're brought into an eternal relationship with Christ. You'll never be outside of this circle. Right? You're safe, you're held, you're protected. We talked about that, about your assurance in the second week or first week. So you're never going to be outside of this circle. Because we have this now, we have this relationship with God. What happens when you sin, though? Okay. It's not about your justification, because this whole circle is your justification. You can't come out of the circle. Your relationship never changes. We use the illustration that for you moms, your, your children can never not be your children. They're yours. You, you gave birth to them. Nothing can change that. Uh, if you adopted them, then you adopted them. They're your children. Nothing's going to change that. Nothing can change our relationship with God. Our goodness, our badness, what we do, what we don't do, we're justified, as Paige said. What happens when we sin is our fellowship breaks. And it's not that we're not God's children anymore, but we just start to move away from Him because of sin. And so when I say this, He proactively appeals to our flesh that's in us. That's in an effort 
to break fellowship between us and God. What happens when you're outside of out of fellowship with God? You're more tempted to sin. I think so. Just kind of opening that door to... Yeah, I think you're less likely to stand firm or resist, like we saw last week. You're less likely to, because you're not drawing near to God, you're less likely to fall into that temptation. Can you please God when you're not in fellowship with Him? When you're out of fellowship? I don't think so. I don't think you can do any true good works when you're outside of fellowship. So a lot of times in these passages in Scripture where people think that you're losing your salvation, it's not, it's not what it's talking about. It's talking about you're breaking your fellowship because we never lose our eternal life. We're never not justified once we have been. So think about that as we look at this lesson. I'm going to read it again, and I want you to think about it in the context of Satan and what he's doing. He, on purpose, appeals to our flesh. He's intentional. Remember last week, he proactively seeks, he roams around like a lion seeking to devour. He appeals to our flesh through certain temptations, hoping that we'll take the bait. He hopes that we sin. Because when that happens, the result of sin is what? You break fellowship. For the wages of sin is? Or separation. Who wants that? Okay. So now that we've talked about that, let's talk about it. Or talk about the lesson. We see from Scripture that even though Satan wins battles, we know that he what? What happens in the end? He loses the war. We know who wins in the end. And I want to give that caveat before we talk about this, because for the tens of tens of people who are going to watch this on YouTube, and for us here, the people who uh, don't get this, they conceptualize things different in Scripture. Uh, when they look at things and they think, well, that doesn't make sense. And part of the reason that doesn't make sense is because they don't uh, view it through the right perspective. And so we don't get caught up in the fact that there is a spiritual battle. We don't get inundated in our thoughts by thoughts of demons and the fact that there are angels maybe even in this room right now. That's not what the point is because we know what happens in the end. We know that Satan wins, or Satan loses, Jesus wins, and then he tells us in First John that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We have the power to overcome Satan. So I just want to start with that. Because the rest of this can, you know, might seem to be overbearing. So we know that he loses the war. Even so, because of what we just showed here, these battles impact the believer's spiritual and mental well-being at the very least. At the very least. The battles are important and worth fighting, and they're worth winning, which is why Paul told us what he said last week, which is to stand firm and resist. Put on the full armor of God. It's worth fighting. Because here is a problem for believers. It's not what it should be. We're not as effective as we can be for the kingdom. Uh, it's the life is, it's not the quality of life that God wants for us. And so when we're out of fellowship, that stuff happens. So it's important to win. A lot is at stake and our enemies are determined. Satan cares and he's intentionally proactive. So I put here the praise God that it says in 1 John 4, 4 that you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he is in you. That's an intentional comfort from John. So, I say all that to say that we saw last lesson that Satan is deceptive, he's predatory, he's intentional. 
he's proactive in his seeking, trickery, and his scheming. The baseline to all that, meaning the bottom line, put plainly, is that Satan wants you to sin. What is the goal of Satan's schemes? He wants you to sin. Sin separates man from God. So Satan's schemes are innumerable. And they're the means by which he attempts to accomplish his ends. <coughs> if that's true, and the only thing that we know, it's enough to know that sin's enough to separate us in our fellowship. But let's talk specifically about it. When someone says sin, what is that? I have two blanks there, so you can take a guess. But when somebody says sin, what is actually, what is that, what is sin? It's anything that's contrary to the character of God. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's kind of a broad thing. It covers a lot of ground, but it, it kind of does. It's, it, I think that's spot on. I think that hits the mark, which Paige said the word sin literally means miss the mark, and it does. To miss the mark means, in this sense, just like what he said, God and his character are perfect. Uh, they're spot on. Anything that departs or defects from that is sin. Okay? So the words that I want to use here are defection or rebellion from God's word or his character. Defection or rebellion from God's <coughs> word or his character. <clears throat> and we're going to talk about it here. Before. I don't want to say anything else until after I said this next part, and then we'll talk about it. There's two types of this defection or rebellion. The first part are sins of commission. Sins of commission. Okay? The best way to conceptualize or to define that is these are our actions that are sin. Sins of commission. These are the things that you do that are sin. This is what <coughs> I would say 95% of people focus on is the stuff that you do that's sin. But that's, that's, that's not it. That's only half the side of the coin, or half of the coin. There's another half, which are sins of omission. This is our inaction that is sin. There are things that we do that are sin, there's things that we don't do that are sin. So let's think about that for a second. You tell me if this makes sense, because I don't know. It's been a while since I've wrote this. Does this make sense to you? Like It's clear to think about there's certain things that are sinful. But you think about the Ten Commandments. A lot of those are do this, don't do that. We're not supposed to have idols. We're not supposed to put another God before us. We're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain. We're not supposed to murder. We're not supposed to steal. We're not supposed to commit adultery. All that type of stuff. That's easy to conceptualize, but when you think about sins of omission, what are some things that we're told to do? That's huge. That is. We're supposed to make disciples. Isn't that the great commission? When Jesus left, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So let's talk about that. Is it a sin not to do that? It has to be. Is that defection? 
or rebellion from God's word if by not doing it? How much not making disciples is finally <coughs> sinful? Who knows? I don't know the answer to that. But it's, it's going to be like that, by the way, in a lot of the stuff that we're about to talk about. So making disciples, not doing that, that's a sin of omission. Especially when you think about what the outcome of that would be. If you play that out, over time, what happens if nobody's making disciples? Nobody knows the message. Satan wins. That's the, that's the point. That's the point. All right. Satan wants us because that's what he wants. Remember, that's the baseline, foundational truth. Satan wants us to sin. What else? Is, what else are things that we don't do? Not loving one another. Not reading your Bible. Not studying. Yeah, I think so. So, page seven, especially I, I, I like this one. Right. So, Second Timothy two fifteen. Paul says to be diligent, to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. He's telling Timothy that, but that applies to us. So how long is it <coughs> before we're not diligent in our study to show ourselves approved to God? Uh, I can't make disciples if you're not doing that stuff, do you? Yeah, and that's, you know, we're going to talk about that here in just a second. And she's right. She said you can't be a disciple unless you're doing that. How can you teach people the word of God or show them the way to go if you don't know what he says? It's very practical. It's stuff that as Christians in 2022 we don't talk about. So this is very, very practical. And that goes that's why I harp on the goal of all knowledge is application, not knowledge itself. Knowledge itself literally causes us to wither away in arrogance. Putting something behind it, putting the application into effect is what generates the change. So what else? I mean, if you think about it, you literally start thinking about all the Bible verses that we learn when we're little and the stuff that's talked about, and you can pick out any of them. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. That is convicting. I know I can tell you at least 25 years of my life, I was kind to hardly anybody. I was tenderhearted to less. I forgave hardly anybody. People got what they deserved, in my opinion. If things were good in my life, that's because I was living right, and I was doing it right. And if somebody else, things were going bad for them, that's because they weren't. That's their own fault. That's not what Scripture says. That's not what Jesus says. I'm kind and I forgive, and you can... <laughs> I know. That's, that, isn't that the natural I'm tendency? I'm you kindness, and I'm forgiving you, and you have move on. <laughs> That it is hard. And I'll just be honest with you. As a believer, that's why it's a process. Our sanctification or being conformed more and more to Christ's image, you can tell somebody who's matured in that way, uh, and I'm not one of them, by the way, because they get to that point where they can do it immediately. Jesus said, Don't he said, What reward is there if you love the people who are lovable? He said, Don't even unbelievers do that? But love the unloved. Love the people that are hard to love. Pray for your enemies. Pray for the people that persecute you. Man, Jesus sets a high bar, but that's what we're supposed to grow and grow more and more to be conformed like it. So when you think about these sins of omission, there's this stuff we all know that we're not supposed to do, even though we do most of those anyway. How much harder is it then for us to do the stuff we're supposed to do? To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks, to be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, the let our requests be known to God. 
you just start going through all the verses that you know, and all of a sudden it's like, man, I don't, that doesn't characterize me very often. Which is why this whole lesson is focused on your identity. Because if you know who you are in Christ and what you're capable of and what about you is different than the way it used to be, there's more likely that you're going to put that into practice. If you don't know who you are and you don't know what you're capable of, and just like we saw last week, if you don't, if you aren't making a strong foundation stance, standing firm against Satan's schemes or resisting, he's going to win it. And I think if you look at the last 200 years of our country, I meaning the 250 years of our country, I don't know how, how often this has been emphasized. I think we so often, well, we look at Scripture so much as how somebody's supposed to have eternal life or gain their way into heaven, when really the whole emphasis is on what you do with your Christian life now that you have it. <coughs> that starts with knowing who we are. So I put it here. One way to think about Satan's activity in this context is that his goal is to tempt us towards the result of sin. Which means that he's trying to get us to do something that's sinful. Does that make sense? Satan's real. He's a real entity. And he's, a, he's proactive. He's intentional in his efforts to get us to sin. Because in that way, he wins and God doesn't. But the second thing is, is he tries to, get, to distract us towards the result of sin. This is to get us to sin by not doing what we're supposed to do. You tell me, because you guys are better historians than I am, you think it's easier or harder to be distracted in 2022 than it ever has been? Spencer? Social media. Okay, social media, cell phones. Even, even communication. I remember it was like in the 80s, if you didn't want to talk to anybody, you didn't have to. Really nice, right? you, you pick up the phone or. You just take your phone off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> now you are literally beholden to anybody who wants to get a hold of you and have a conversation with you. That's difficult because it's distracting. Time's the one resource that doesn't regenerate. You can't get it back once it's gone either. You only have so much of it on this life, and what are we doing with it? Seriously, what are we doing with it? And I'm worse than anybody. Uh, any, 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 any kid that was born post-80s, you've got video games. I mean, that is literally, as a parent, as a guilty parent, how easy is it to say, go do that for 15 or 20 minutes, and it turns into two hours, while mom and dad do this. You know, it's the same for parents. Hey, I'm just going to play this for 30 minutes. And the next thing you know. It's well, I know, but that's too convincing for me to say it. Hey, you the kids. I'm going to play this. I'm going to Seriously, I mean, that's just video games. That isn't the internet at large. <coughs> Information and communication. Man, I remember, like, my parents got a set of encyclopedias, and that was, like, my bathroom reading for 20 years. Yeah. Reader's Digest, baby. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you got the internet and all this plus so much more. You want to know about something? It takes two seconds to type it in and look it up. I mean, the opportunity for distraction, which is all part of what we're going to start next week, which is Satan's fallen world system. He has got it to where he is controlling, deceiving, 
uh, distracting, uh, he's got that on cruise control. So he can start focusing on other things because he's not like God. He can't be everywhere at once. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He has limited resources. So he's got this world system set up, and he's winning. He is. So, uh, turn, well, I've got it in here. You don't have to turn there. Is 1 John 2, 15 through 17 in there? Okay. So, especially verse 16, where does he Satan's go-to sin process? He's notorious for attempting this in order to tempt some of the most important people ever. Not just us, but also some of the most important people ever. I'm going to touch on it lightly here uh, as the next two lessons are going to talk about the world system, but we're going to kind of introduce it here. But look what he says. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Okay, that's convicting already. That's convicting. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's more convicting. We'll talk about that in a second. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, we know what that is because we studied it, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Here's a perspective. The world is passing away, and also it's less. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. From this passage, we see three things that Satan tempts us with. The first one is the lust of the flesh. And we've already studied this, but here's a nice little definition. is the desire to do that which is contrary to God's word, especially as it pertains to your physical needs. Okay? That's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes is the desire to have that which is contrary to God's will. I don't know if you guys remember this, but like week one or two, we talked about this pattern that falls in line here. We see something, we want it, we take it, we hide it. Happened all the way through, from Adam and Eve to David to us. It's the same way. The third thing is the pride of life. It's the desire to be that which is contrary to God's will. To do, to have, and to be. There's an obvious understanding of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. We get that. But what about the pride of life? That definition is a little bit more abstract. Let's see some examples first. We keep our question in your mind. In your mind as we see how Satan applied this program to do, have, and be apart from God. How he did it on Eve, David, and then Jesus. Here in Genesis 3.6. Oh man, did I I didn't make those blanks on yours, did I? I was gonna do a guessing game. Yeah, those bold those bold parts are supposed to be guesses. Oh well. Just think about it then. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, okay, that it was a delight to the eyes. <coughs> And if the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave all to her husband with her, and he ate. Yeah, without studying this passage, it doesn't look like there's anything here except for some sort of narrative. But really, at the outset, God is establishing a pattern that Satan prays on. And it's clear all throughout Scripture. She took from its fruit and ate. That's the lust of the flesh. What had God told her not to do? 
You can eat from any of these other trees. Just don't eat from this one. She wanted to do what was contrary to God's word. And Satan tempted her to. She saw that the tree was good for food. And it was a delight to her eyes. Before she could take it, she had to see it. She saw it. She wanted to have it. And that she wanted to have what was contrary to God's will. He had said, don't do it. And why? She saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Isn't that what Satan attempted her with? Yeah. He knows you'll be like him. And she said, oh, really? I'll just eat it then. And then I will be like him. She wanted to be that which is contrary to God's will. So we see this pattern right out of the edit. He's going to use the exact same thing on Jesus as well. Directly. Keep in mind, Satan had direct interaction with Adam and Eve. And he had direct interaction with Jesus in Luke 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. What was he doing in the Jordan, by the way? Yeah, he got baptized. This is right after. This is at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus shows her. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. Baptizes him. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, and here it is. He returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone. He led him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I'll give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus said, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then finally, Satan led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Because it's written, Satan's caught on to Jesus' game. Jesus has defended him with Scripture every time, so now Satan's going to use it against him. He said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it. Before you say anything, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, and answered him, and said, You shall not put your Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. I don't make a note of it here, but I do want you to think about this. Why did Satan leave? Because Jesus had resisted. <coughs> yeah. He had a strong foundation. He resisted. And the book of James says when we resist Satan's temptations, he will flee. This is a great example of that. But he said, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. It's the lust of the flesh. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world. If you worship before me, it shall all be yours. He showed it to him. It's the lust of the eyes. He said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Him. Prove it to me. Show me. For guys, challenge is hard not to take. 
I, maybe I, I know Paige is competitive. I don't know about all the other stuff, but it may be for you too. But he said, throw yourself down from here. If you are the Son of God, because these angels will come and get you. And Jesus could have done it and showed him, but he didn't do it. He wasn't prideful. We talked about it, and I think if you actually we're going to talk about it in a second, so I'm not going to talk about it now. All right, we'll come back here. So now we've talked about Eve, Jesus. They both dealt with Satan directly. <coughs> Eve failed, Jesus won. But here's what's here's the sad failure. Not from a direct, but from an indirect attack or temptation. Second scene, we're talking about King David. Now, when evening came, I, I should put verse 1 in there because it says when the time when kings are supposed to go out to battle, David's not at battle, he's at home. When he's supposed to be doing what he's supposed to be doing as king. Now, when evening came, which is, by the way, Satan comes often when we're already not supposed to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. That's when he gets you. It's funny how that works. It's funny how that works, isn't it? Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. When the Bible says that she's beautiful, I bet she was beautiful. So David sat and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? If you know anything about Uriah, he was one of David's mighty men. And in a sense, this guy's saying, Isn't this one of your... Bros, wives. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, she returned to her uncleanness. She returned to her house. Uh-oh. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. We're not going to see it here, but uh, the issue is compounded because now David needs to hide this fact that He's gotten Bathsheba pregnant. And he ends up killing Uriah. Passively. He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. That's <coughs> less the eyes. He saw something. So David sent and inquired about the woman. <coughs> and he took her, and he lay with her. That's less of the flesh. He's doing that which is contrary to God's word. And look at this in the pride of life. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. This is the pride of life. This is him saying, I don't care who she is. I'm the king. And I'll do what I want. You can conceptualize it as lust in the flesh as well. But this is a pride issue. The pride of life defines the motivation behind the behaviors. I told you to keep that one in mind as we look at these two things. But I want you to think about that. The pride of life defines the motivation behind the behaviors, behind the attitudes and the actions we take that are directly contrary to God's will and His Word. We're going to talk about this next week specifically. But the pride of life is the counterfeit self that Satan wants us to project and aspire towards. And when you don't know who you are in Christ, and you're not confident, and you're not rooted, and you're not grounded, 
We want to project something that's not us. We want to aspire towards something that isn't what God wants us to aspire towards. This counterfeit, fake self that Satan wants us to chase after. It values self-esteem, self-promotion, individualistic uh, existences, just for self, apart from anybody else. It's the powerful uh, individual. Yeah, that we all at some point in life have probably aspired to and really that our culture projects is something that we should aspire to the prideful life allows and promotes the idea that each individual person determines his or her own happiness his or her own future and his or her own reality <coughs> it moves us towards being our own individual gods in that sense that we call the shots and that we do what we want instead of what God, for, what God wants for us it's when we say, I'm going to do, have, and be all the things that I want instead of the things that God wants me to be. N-I-O. What? N-I-O. Yeah, and that's a good example of saying our culture and society is something that's happening right now. They're going to ruin what was probably one of the most wholesome things left in sports by chasing money. The root of all evil is money, is what the Bible says. That's Satan's process. So let's let's see one more example from Scripture. We talked about this last week. We'll see if you remember. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He must be killed. And he must be raised up on the third day. Just like we talked to in week one. Jesus did what he did out of love for us. That's why he came. He came to die and rose again to deal with sin, to conquer death so that we would have a substitute worthy to offer us eternal life. He had to do it. And then Peter took him aside. Can you imagine? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen. Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. What was Peter saying? And how could Jesus compare him to Satan? We already know that Satan's goal is to (coughs) prevent God's plan. He's the adversary. He stands in opposition to God and to us and he wants to prevent it from happening. Satan's goal is to prevent God's plan. It's important in understanding this passage. Because I was probably 30 before it clicked, or before I was taught, I don't know. Whichever one happened first. But I always, I remember growing up thinking, why in the world did Jesus call Peter Satan? That's pretty harsh. If he calls Peter Satan, what am I? But we know that Satan's goal is to prevent God's plan. And in this case, even though Peter was ignorant of what he was saying, or maybe unaware of the implications, Peter's suggestion was to prevent God's plan. Isn't that true? Jesus says, he must go to Jerusalem and be killed and raised up on the third day. (coughs) And then he says, you're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. So let's analyze the situation think about it. I think I wrote it down there, but let's read it. Peter's emotions 
I think this is out of love for Jesus. He didn't want Jesus to die because he loved being with him and learning from him. Peter's emotions led him to make suggestions based on his interests and not God's, thereby being a stumbling block to Jesus. Peter heard Jesus speaking about what was coming and was only considering himself. The man cited Jesus because he said he was a stumbling block. The man cited Jesus was tempted in the exact same way that Satan tempted Both Peter and Satan are saying, do it a different way. Do it my way. There is no other way. Jesus had to die and he had to rise again. That was the purpose of him even becoming a man. And Jesus responded in a manner that sets the perspective for all of us. And that you can underline that or asterisk this part, but that perspective is that if your intentions are not, that should say are not of God, they are of Satan. That's a pretty black and white statement. That the pride of life deals with your motivations and the reasons why you do what you do. If your perspective and intentions are not of God, then they are Satan. And so when Jesus says, or if somebody says, if you be for me, who can be against me? It's the same type of idea. We want to be for God and not against him. So here's some questions to consider. And these are just kind of like little midpoint applications to think about. Are there ways in which you unknowingly hinder God's work or hinder what he wants? I think a lot of times we'd say, uh, man, I didn't mean to. Or, you know, I didn't know that. Well, I wasn't thinking about it that way. I think Peter would say the same thing. That's not what I meant. I'm not trying to align with Satan's will. I didn't know that's what I was doing. So how, you know, so think about that for your life. Are there ways that you unknowingly hinder God's work or hinder what he wants? And just like uh, Paige said earlier, how can you know what he wants if you don't know what's in the Bible? How can you know what he wants if you don't read Scripture? Because I'll be honest with you, it's dangerous to listen to a man in a pulpit tell you what God says and you take that uh, for truth without some sort of knowledge of your own. Because in that way, that person can control you or manipulate you. And that happens today in society. You don't have, I mean, most televangelists do it. The burden of responsibility is on the individual to be diligent to present yourself and prove to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed because they can accurately handle or rightly divide the word of truth. So this next one, what are some things that you do that may keep the gospel from being proclaimed? Are you afraid? Uh, do you not know what to say? Because those two things are easily <coughs> overcome. You can overcome the fear and you can learn what to say. What actions do you engage in that hinder your own fellowship? And maybe even the more convicting one, what actions do you engage in to hinder others' fellowship? Husbands and wives, wives and husbands, fathers and children, mothers and children, children and parents. That's the first cross-section that you have to look at because it's in your home that starts where you're at and then it goes from there. More importantly, what's the motivation behind your decisions and your actions? 
Does your flesh pull you to justify these potential hindrances with with emotion, like Peter? Emotions are a tricky thing. God gave them to us for a reason. He gave us fear for a reason. There's an appropriate time to be afraid. There's appropriate times not to be afraid. There's inappropriate times to be afraid. You can, however you want to say it. So it's important that you have them in check and you're self-aware of that to, how they're, to how they're either controlling you or you're using them. Because Satan and your flesh and the world are liars. Is what Jesus just said. They lie to you and there's no truth in them. Your flesh tells you that your good intentions matter. But if they're not rooted in His will, which is in, in Scripture, then they don't. The world system tells you to be happy in your comforts. And that everything but God matters, really. And those things don't matter. It's all a sideshow. And of course, Satan is appealing to our flesh through the world system. And it's confusing and distracting everyone from realizing that to live in the flesh is death, darkness, it's worthless, it's detrimental, and it's evil. Satan's greatest success, just like it was for me for 20 years of my life, was making people feel happy or comfortable (laughs) in their little apathetic state of not caring. But Jesus wants to walk uh, by the Spirit, to live a life that's pleasing to Him, to have life, to be in the life, to be valuable, to be beneficial, to be righteous, and all of those things. And we can't do that if we're out of fellowship. That's why it's important that we recognize that we're capable of any sin. That's our flesh. That the world system, which is built by Satan, is designed to tempt that flesh. And if we don't stand firm, uh, if we're not alert, that's the word we haven't talked about, if we don't, if we're not aware that that's even happening, we will be destroyed right here. It's going to be impossible to maintain fellowship. And that's why he gave us each other. That's why each of us has a different spiritual gift that we can serve one another with in the body. It's so that we can make a strong stance and defend. Alright, so that's kind of the Satan part. Now let's talk about his little helpers. We have a pretty good idea from scriptures that we've looked at what Satan is up to. We know he wants us to sin. We know about our flesh, and we know that Satan's going to do whatever he can to appeal to it. Since he can't do it all at once, like he did to Eve, because she was the only person other than Adam, he could could hyper-focus on them, which he did, and he tried to do that with Jesus directly. How does he go about extending his reach? Well, we're going to talk about the world system next week, but this week we're going to say that Satan uses those who rebelled with him to do his bidding, and we call them demons. Satan uses demons. This might blow your mind, but look at that first sentence. There are over 100 references to demons in the New Testament alone. And all authors in the New Testament, except the author of Hebrews, mentions them. That means Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James. They all mention this isn't This isn't some contrived, pieced together concept that are used to you know, exemplify Satan's little elves doing his bidding. 
Satan uses real entities that were just like him, that they were spirit beings, angels, that rebelled against God. And they have an axe to grind. Satan is, des is the designated ruler of the demons we see in Matthew. We know that Satan has well-organized ranks. They're called rulers and authorities in Ephesians. We're going to look at this diagram in just a second. Of, fa of fallen angels who attempt to further his purposes. Demons work to extend Satan's reach, influence, and will. Okay? And just like Satan, <coughs> they oppose God's plan. Okay, so looking at this chart, we have angels. All angels. Okay, there's two types. What do we have? Okay, unfallen, sometimes called elect angels. Or just angels. What else do we have? The demons. Yeah, the fallen ones. Um, my daughter's, you know, they heard JV say this one time, so they used it against me. Because so I used to call I used to call both of my daughters my angels. And of course the older Julie guy, she's like, You saying that I'm ugly and scary? Because you know, every single reference to the angels manifest themselves to humans people immediately get scared. Most of the angels always have to say the first things out of their mouth are Don't be afraid. Be not afraid, don't be afraid. Because they're scary. And powerful. Okay, so of these fallen angels, as you say scripture, there's two types. What are they? What does it mean loose and active? Free to do them, please. Yeah. These are the ones that are right now that we're dealing with. And you can see from Ephesians 6 and 11, these are the rulers, the principalities. <laughs> forces of wickedness are evil in the heavenly place. <laughs> Uh, you know, you t you know, we, we kind of joke about that. But it's true, though. You, you think about, is it possible that Satan or the demons maybe still possess people? Oh, yeah. How can you study Hitler and not think he wasn't possessed? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, right now, something that's popular are these Netflix about the serial killers. I don't think they'd be watching this. Mm -hmm. She won't let me. No, because I'm not going to open my house to that crap. That's smart. I'm doing it. That's, that's weird. I, I have made it. All my students are watching it. I haven't watched them. So these loose and active demons are out there, and they're serving Satan. They're doing. They're extending his reach. Okay, and then what is it? What are confined demons? They can only do certain... They're tasked. They have to do certain tasks. So these ones are actually... Like imprisoned. They're chained. They're, yeah, they're chained. Uh, which is weird to think about. <coughs> uh, of the confined demons or fallen angels, we have the other two types. We have the ones that are maybe temporarily, best we can tell. Temporarily. And then you have the ones that are permanently. Well, the temporary ones, I think, are just going to go from. From one to another. Yeah, they're going to go out of the frying pan into the fryer. <laughs> Literally. If they haven't already. Or out of the frying pan. So I don't know, but it does mention that in Revelation 9 that some of them will be released. 
but then we know from Second Peter and Jude that there's these ones that are permanently confined. And best that we can tell, these are the ones that tried to literally oppose God's plan and bring about the Messiah to the Jews. And Satan tried to create his own super race. We think that's what the Nephilim are in Genesis. It's weird to think you have so weird to say out loud, but it's probably what it is. <laughs> so it's weird. Like Satan, they exhibit intelligence. They knew who Jesus was. You remember they say, we know who you are. Or we know, one of them says to Paul, we know who you are. We know who Jesus was. The whole book of Mark. That all the demons recognize who Jesus was and none of the people seem to. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's interesting. They also know their eventual demise because they're in Matthew when he's dealing with the, when he throws them into the pigs. He says, have you come to deal with us before our time? So they know that their impending doom is coming. They believe in, this is not salvific faith, <coughs> the one God in James 2.19. Even the demons believe and shudder. Why is there not a salvation plan for demons? Why can't demons be, or why can't angels be saved? Why can humans be saved and not angels? We have a Savior. We, that's perfect. So Kevin, Kevin said it. He said we have a Savior. What do you mean by we? People. Humans. Jesus had to become a, a man. He had to become a human. They don't have that. They haven't had a lesser than spirit being die for them or sacrifice for them or live a perfect existence and then give that up for them. That's why they shudder. Demons believe and shudder because they know they don't have a salvation plan. The advantage of their intelligence, though, is that they their parents, I don't know if all of them have, but it appears that they've, been, they've existed throughout the span of human history. Think about, think about what you've learned in your you know, 25 to 60 years of life or however long we've been alive. They've been alive for thousands and thousands of years and they didn't have the pleasure of just following one person. They see how many people act in many circumstances they know where we're general, meaning how most people react in a given circumstance. They know how specific people will act in specific circumstances. It's weird to think about. They've observed human beings in just about every conceivable situation. In the book of Hebrews, it says that even angels are peering into our, our lives. Uh, they look at us and they're jealous of us because they don't have a way of salvation, because God seems to have favor on us that he didn't have for them. And someday we're going to judge the angels. That's weird too. Probably these fallen angels we're going to judge. Okay? And two is emotions. They, they have emotions. <coughs> <coughs> they, especially about their pending doom. Yeah, they shudder in James. They're worried that Jesus is going to deal with them before their time. They have a will which they express. They, they have a desire. Obviously, they were free to choose to follow Satan, and they did. 
And they have personality. They're used, uh, they're described using personal pronouns. So it's not like one is the same as the next. They are different, just like we are. It's weird. We can't see them. They don't manifest themselves spiritually to us. Obviously, throughout the history of man, they've manifested themselves by possession. But we're not getting to actually see them. From Scripture, we see the demons engage in at least these several activities. Number one, they act as Satan's agents. That's, that's pretty clear. That makes sense, right? Two, they oppose the plan of God, which we're going to actually read this here in just a second. Three, they encourage idolatry. They promote fault. By the way, they encourage it because that's what they've done. Satan said, I'm going to make myself like the most high. And the ones that follow him basically said, okay, we better follow this guy. In a sense, they followed the wrong guy. So they're going to encourage other people to do the same, which is the same as number four, is they promote false religion. Here's something that's weird is that they bring sickness, they bring diseases and disorders. I don't know the means by which they go about doing that. But don't you think COVID is a pretty... I mean, take all your political whatever out of it and yeah. just look at everything that it it's created. It goes back to division. I mean, it created chaos. Yeah, I think, I think... I mean, we know from Scripture that they do those things, uh, whether it's through means of possession or whether it's through contriving that through the fallen world system. Uh, it's just interesting. It is. It is interesting. You, you can't you can't say one way or the other. Yeah, it's just, you know. It's weird, though. Something that people kind of don't want to think about is number six, is possession. We see that at least 13 times in the New Testament people are possessed. I don't know if all of you have started or are watching the Chosen series, but it's fantastic. I mean, it follows Scripture almost word for word. Uh, but I didn't know... They showed Mary is possessed, and I was like, okay, I'm not watching this. But then I went and read and found out Mary was possessed. So I was like, oh, man, I'm learning something by watching this. So it's something that's interesting to think about. Demons are powerful, and they're numerous. We see in Scripture that they create superhuman strength among those whom they possess. And as they're spiritual beings, they're not restricted to space in the same way that humans are. They are granted the limited ability to hinder angelic activity as well, which we're going to see right here in Daniel. Okay, so Daniel's writing, and he's giving this account. He's out by the river. He says, So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. Take that for what, you know, did he die, or did he just, you know, no more strength? I don't know. For my natural color turned into a deathly power. <coughs> and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. And just, we're going to move down verse 12. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel. For the first days you set your heart on understanding this, and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to your words, which means he was probably sent by God. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Okay. Face value, 
You can interpret that several different ways, but actually when you study this, who's the prince of Persia here? One of the demons. It's one of the demons. The word prince here in this context is certainly referencing to an angel since Michael was also called what? An angel. He's called a prince. So God has his hierarchy of angels, and so does Satan. And one of these was hindering. So Daniel's over here praying, dying, and one of the angels shows up and says, sorry, I'm late. I was, having to, I was having to deal with one of these other angels. And he, was, he, he followed me for 21 days. It's weird to think about. By the way, we're going to see it here in just a minute. <coughs> I don't think the archangels are having battles over us. Do you know why? They don't need to, for one. Well, they don't need to. We're also not important in that. Was Daniel important? The further and further we get into human history, the more important Daniel becomes because it's the key to helping unlock some of the mysteries of Revelation and end times prophecy. Daniel was important. Okay? Several times in Scripture, angels, demons, Satan, and even Jesus are all referred to as a prince of something. Evidently, the angel that uh, addressing Daniel had some responsibility in Persia that involved the authorities of the area. However, having received a commission from God to visit Daniel, there was a hindrance in delivering it because of the influence of the bad angel that had influence over him. Michael visited the good angel and helped him break away from the demon's power and hindrance so he could visit Daniel. Um, what do you think about it? But we can learn from this passage, even though it's strange and it's spiritual in nature, meaning not physical. We see that Satan's agents, one, can hinder other angels' activities. They did. It's true. You can't say that they can't, or you have to disregard this passage. They can hinder others' angels' activities. The prince of Persia had delayed the arrival of God's answer to Daniel's prayer. He was evidently a fallen angel who, under Satan's authority, probably had a responsibility for Persia. An angelic hostility had resulted in the 21-day delay of this good angel's arrival with God's message. By the way, the word angel means messenger. Means messenger. Number two, Satan's agents can act of their own will, even opposing, even opposing God, uh, obviously within the parameters that God says. God could overrule any of those actions if he chooses. He allows demons uh, certain limited powers of obstruction or rebellion, somewhat like those. He allows us the same thing, by the way. He allows us to rebel and to obstruct his will. Why wouldn't he allow them? In both cases, the exercise of free will and opposition to God is permitted by him when he sees fit. The two places in scriptures we've already looked at, Satan is never allowed to go beyond, or we haven't looked at these yet, that Satan is never allowed to go beyond the due limit set by God. Who will not allow the believer to be tested beyond his or her own way or what they're able. Okay? That's important. That's why I gave the caveat to start this lesson. Don't get freaked out about angels' powers because we have the ability to overcome. Three, probably have more of a focus on influencing important and more powerful people. Because they have limited resources. The more populated the world gets, the more he needs to have an effective world system, which he is, which he is there. 
I don't see it as a reach that Satan has a hierarchy and reporting structure that probably involves responsibility over the political realm. Some angels probably have more authority and power than others do. If you think about this, especially in Revelation, what brings about the last, you know, what brings about the tribulation and the really the end, the end days, not just the last days, because we're in the last days now. But it's got to come down to governmental powers. We know that it goes down to a 10-king federation, down to a 3, and then to 1. And the way one person is the Antichrist, possessed probably by Satan himself. So there is a political influence there, which is super careful. Why we have to be super careful, in my opinion, about our elected leaders. Whose will do we want to do? Well, let's look at Kanye. I mean, proclaims himself as a black Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. No, weird. You can look at biblical truths to help determine who you're going to vote for. Um, and I'm not a preacher. And I'm not paid by Sword of Bible. So I can say this. But what are some of the factors, by the way? If it's true that angels and demons do influence over the political realm, what are some things we ought to consider? By the way, what's one of the oldest promises or covenants in the Bible? He will bless those who bless is who? Abraham. Abraham. Who's Abraham? Who? Jews. Israel. He'll bless those who bless Israel and he'll curse those who curse them. That's not just an individual promise. That's a collective promise. It applies to you individually and it applies to our country. So that's why we... We fight so hard to keep them as an ally. And we should. We always should bless them in whatever way we can. Uh, above and beyond that, people who stand for biblical truth, people who are going to help our country conform to the image of Christ. You've got to think about that. Sometimes that may look differently than what it looks like on the surface. <coughs> but that's stuff that we have to start considering. Listen, here's what one commentator says. Although the entire subject of the unseen struggle, it's unseen because we can't see it, although the entire subject of the unseen struggle between holy angels and the fallen angels is not clearly revealed in scriptures, from the rare glimpses which we are afforded, as in this instance in Daniel, it's plain that behind the political and social conditions of the world, there is angelic influence. Let me read that last sentence again. It is plain that behind the political and social conditions of the world, there is angelic influence. Good on the part of the holy angels, evil on the part of the angels under satanic control. And keep in mind that Satan is a liar, and he's the father of lies. So when you pay attention to society and sociology, <laughs> pay close attention to where the lies are. We know what truth is because it's in the word of God. And the people who are confused are confused because they have no foundation. The foundation for our existence, not just our lives, is the Word of God. And if society starts going contrary to that, that should be a major red flag for us. Number four, the other thing that we can learn about demons, Daniel didn't know about this invisible conflict between the angels. Clearly, Michael's success was not due to Daniel's praying for or against certain angels or demons. 
You know what I mean? He wasn't saying, Lord, I pray that the angel over in Persia would lose. He just kept praying where he was supposed to pray. And he left it in God's hands, which is what we should do. And I use this passage <coughs> to exemplify that so that we keep an appropriate mindset. Jesus, now he was telling them a parable to show that in all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. That should be on every wall in every home of every Christian. At all times, pray and do not lose heart. And he gives this parable. In a certain city, there's this judge. He didn't fear God, and he didn't respect me. And in that city, there was a widow. She kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while, he was unwilling. But afterwards, he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'm going to give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she's going to wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. The unrighteous judge said, I'm going to give her what she wants until I get worn out. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he who will bring about justice for them, or he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So what are we supposed to take away from our knowledge about demons and their activities? We know that fallen angels and demons exist now and all throughout Scripture. We know that demons assist Satan in his goal of hindering God's will and their activities. We know that demons are powerful. God allows their activity within his parameters. Uh, there's an interesting passage at one point in the New Testament when Paul's talking to Peter. And he tells Peter, uh, Satan came to me and asked for you. He asked to sift you. And it gives me chills thinking about it. What if you were so important about that Satan went to God and said, Why don't you let me take care of him? That's what you think about. Uh, but God lets them do things within his own parameters. He has authority over them. There is an unseen and a seen battle occurring both. We should be encouraged to stay in fellowship. I've raised it, but you know, if you don't remember from that lesson, when you're out of fellowship, what do you do? Separate. Yeah, yeah. So you are separate, but how do you get back into fellowship? What do you do once you're out of fellowship? You confess your sin. You acknowledge it to God. Really, all confession is you're telling on yourself. Like that's the definition. But in practicality, when you're confessing, all you're saying is your way's right, my way's wrong. I defected from what you wanted, and I should have. That's what confession is. And in that way, you're putting yourself back, you're humbling yourself back under God's authority. So we should be encouraged to stay in fellowship and faithful in prayer, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And never forget that Satan and his demons ultimately lose. And you get to pick which side you're going to be on. Revelation 20. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So this is talking about the kingdom. At this point, the church has been raptured. The tribulation has happened. And we're in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Satan has been chained for that entire time. And when those thousand years are completed, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Think about that. How long has Jesus been on the throne at this point? A thousand years. And there's still going to be enough people in this earth, unbelieving and rebellious against him, that Satan is going to be able to gather them. People say, how can that be? If the church is gone, how can there even be that many people left on the earth? I don't know. The United States has only been a country for 250 years, and look how we populated this land. That's just a quarter of the thousand years. And then it says, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They chose poorly. Matthew 25. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. <laughs> people want to talk about it. people are in hell right now. Do you think people are in hell right now? Not the lake of fire. Not the lake of fire. Yeah, it hasn't been created yet. It's going to be very prepared. I guess is a better way to say it. First Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's us. And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters in this life? The, the, the point of what Paul is saying there is that we have to get along as believers and stop you know, quarreling about stuff and making poor judgments because eventually we're going to be the ultimate judges and angels and uh, the world. There's a lot that we don't understand about spiritual warfare. However, it's made clear that at the end of the day, we're to stand firm against the schemes of the devil so that we will resist him. Deny the lust of our flesh by walking in the Spirit and to keep praying. Our faithfulness should not be discouraged because greater is he who is in us than he who is in us. Summary and application. Next week, we're going to take a look at this, what Scripture means about uh, the world system in this context. We'll see that it's most, Satan's most powerful weapon. We'll see that we are to be in the world, but not of the world, and what that means. Julian and Reese were asking me about monks and nuns, and whether it was right for them to be doing what they were doing. And I said, we're supposed to be in the world, not of the world. And we'll see what that means next week. And then we put everything from the first half of the semester together. And I want to do that really quickly since we have a couple of minutes. This class is about our identity, okay? So help me bring it full circle. <coughs> Who we are in Christ, what you're made of, what in the world does Satan have to do with any of that? Why are we studying Satan as part of our identity? Because we have a flesh. Bingo. They said we study Satan because we have a flesh. So keep talking. Why does that matter? I mean, you have to know something to understand how it works and what you need to be on guard for. It's just like preparing to go in about somebody. Okay, so you guys are hitting the nails on the head. So, as new creatures, well, really, the old man, the old, the former part of us still exists in the form of the flesh inside of us. Satan knows this. 
And he can make believers look like unbelievers, either by distracting them or by keeping them out of fellowship. We saw last week, the only way to resist, we do not take the battle to Satan. He wins every time. He's more powerful than us and more capable and smarter than us. If we're not alert and we're not standing firm, we won't resist. So it's important to know how and why he does what he does. And to think about it in our minds and to really rest in the fact that greater is he who is in us, the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, than he who is in the world, Satan. All we have to do is walk by the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Well, we said back then that walking by the Spirit is another practical statement. So what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that we're going to conform to Jesus' image. We're going to continually grow and mature spiritually so that we can make the appropriate decisions when the time comes. Uh, we want to love God and love others. And we want to serve others through the gifts that God's given us because we're new creations. We have spiritual gifts. And when we engage in this uh, profitable, this beneficial, this fruitful labor, we live a life that's pleasing to God because not only are we serving Him, we're not serving Satan. And it's important to remember that any time, this is a black and white issue, it's either or or. You are either serving God or you're passively serving, serving Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Just like Peter. He wasn't knowingly. He didn't mean to. But Jesus said, <coughs> you're either doing my will or you're not. If you're not doing my will, you're just like Satan. Because he opposes me and he does what he wants. So don't forget how this applies because that's the goal. The goal is application. Know who you are and the implications of who you are. Because Satan is proactive. He wants to keep you ignorant. He wants you to be unknown. He wants you to be apathetic. Because if he can get you individually, he can get us as a group. And if he can get us as a group, he can take the world. That sounds defeatist, but it's not. It's just very practical. We're in this great age, we're in this church age, to where we get the benefit, the pleasure, and the opportunity to participate in Jesus' ministry. So here's the summary. Number one, Satan wants you to sin. What is sin? It's defection from God, His Word, and His will. God doesn't move away from you when you sin, by the way. When you sin and you do stuff that's against him, he remains faithful. So he is. You move away from God. He does not move away from you. Even though sometimes it may feel like that because Satan may tempt you to feel like that. Number three, there are two types of sin. There's sins of commission and sins of omission. There's stuff that we are tempted to do that we shouldn't. And there's stuff that he distracts us from doing. This concept is important to understand not just in terms of our defense against Satan, but in appropriate theology. Because most people who want to tie your actions or your works into your eternal life salvation never consider sins of omission. They always only say, don't do this, because if you do, you're not saved. There's an opposite side of that argument. And that is, are you being diligent to present yourself approved to God? Are you kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other? Are you using your spiritual gifts to serve in the body? Are you rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and everything giving thanks? 
Are you anxious about anything? You let your request be made known to God? All these things that we're supposed to do that we don't are just as damning as the stuff that we do that we should. Thank God, literally, that we have a Savior. <coughs> that because He did everything He was supposed to and He didn't do anything He wasn't supposed to, we have a substitute that we put our faith in and we're covered. That is the grace of God, by the way. So this concept is important, the sins of commission and sins of omission. Because not just it helps us stand firm against Satan to be alert about his schemes, but also because it impacts our theology. Number four, Satan tempts us <laughs> in at least three main ways. Through the lust of the flesh, which is to do that which is contrary to God. Through the lust of the eyes, which is to have that which is contrary to God. And the pride of life, which is to be that which is contrary to God. And when we talk about the pride of life, we're talking about your motivations. To be that counterfeit self that culture says this is who you should be. Rich, powerful, handsome, sexy, all this stuff that you should be. That's the pride of life. Five, Satan wants us, or excuse me, wants our fellowship with God to be broken. We know that the wages of sin is death or separation. It always happens. Sin always brings separation. Satan loves that. He wants our fellowship to God with God to be broken because we can't be pleased if everybody's fellowship is broken. Demons, just like Satan, oppose God's will. They're his extension. Satan's extension. They encourage idolatry, promote false religion, bring sickness, diseases, and disorders, and they possess. Number eight, God allows them to operate within their will but also within his parameters. At any point, he could say a word, and they'd have to stop. That's why Satan asked for his permission for Peter. That's why Satan asks for his permission for Job. That's why they recognize and say, if you come to deal with this before it's our will, they know God is God and have to offer it. Nine, you are from God, and you have overcome them meaning Satan or old flesh, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And never forget the safety and solace and comfort there is that Satan and his angels are doomed to eternal torment. We win. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer, you win. So act like it. That's the point of this, of this series. Application number one. <coughs> knowing that being in Christ, you have overcome Satan, his demons in your flesh, don't retreat back into the darkness. That's how he wins. Walk by the Spirit with power and confidence in Christ in the newness of your life. Stand firm, alert and aware against Satan and his schemes. This is how we win. To maintain your fellowship with God, there's nothing more important in your Christian life. Confession, acknowledge, I think you said it right at the beginning. It started, it breaks fellowship and when you're out of fellowship, it just becomes easy to be tempted in other areas. And before you know it, it, it does. It snowballs and you're in your sin. You're like, how did I get myself in this situation? And how did I get out? You're like, man, I was doing really good for three months. I don't know what happened. That's what we're for as a group. That's why it's important to be open. It's important to have intimacy with other believers. Spiritual intimacy. Remember that sin is rebellion against God. 
That's humbling when you conceptualize it that way. That when you're sinning, you are rebelling against our Creator. Satan's will is for uh, us to be separate from God. Eternally for unbelievers or temporarily for believers, not because of sin. Number three, think about and learn to recognize the motives behind your actions because Satan's going to plead to do, have, and be that which is contrary to God. This is an individual application, not a group one. This is for you to think about and learn to recognize the motives behind your actions. Ask yourself the hard questions and challenge yourself to be willing to change. Because Satan's going to pull you to do, have, and be that which is contrary to God. Focus on what we can and are told to control as humans. Be aware of the spiritual forces and their role, but not consumed by them. Okay? It's important to not always wonder if it's, you know, a demon is in your life or affecting something. Call it what it is. Don't be consumed by it. Just be aware. Because we've overcome them in Christ. What they're up to and how we can deny, flee, and resist them isn't enough to have a victorious life. Okay, does anybody have any questions or comments? We talked a lot about identity. I think one of Satan's main approaches is to give us a confused idea about what our identity is, especially when we fail. He wants to tell us that we're not who we are, convince us that we're not who we really are. And if he can get us to act like who we're not, that's a a big part of the battle won already. I struggle with that. I think that a lot of times you start focusing on what you're not. And you start questioning Am I really, can I even be that effective? You know, what does it matter? You know, that is stuff that's straight from the pit of hell. It's stuff that's straight from Satan. And so when you start questioning who you are, and you start doubting your effectiveness <coughs> as an individual, or whatever role you have, as a father, as a brother, as an uncle, as a son, or whatever, Satan wins. I think that's a great point. Not to mention the fact that identity in terms of sexual gender is literally uh, the result of not knowing who we are as people. I mean, it's like we're so thirsty for truth and answers that we'll drink lies. Satan loves that. He loves that. But Christians, especially today's Christians, they don't know. He's always talking about this type of stuff. We're too scared to. Now we're certainly scared to. Because we're, in the, we're, not, we're on the visiting team. We're, we're the minority. I mean, yeah, we're the minority now. It's like you said, you know, the intellectual connections, having conversations with people. That right there yeah. removes all of it. Yeah, it keeps you from doing that. I mean, that's why it's so hard to raise teenagers right now. Yeah, which is why your question earlier about COVID, for me... You know, it's, you don't want to be a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist. Right. But we know that the body of Christ was built <laughs> to encourage one another. And in Hebrews, the verse says, and let's uh, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near, meaning the, the last day. So if you think about that, we know that we're supposed to encourage one another, we know that we're supposed to be around one another. There's been nothing in my lifetime that's been more directly divisive than COVID. Not, I'm not just talking about politically, I'm talking about physically. We literally couldn't be around each other. And I'm not denying the effects of it. I know people died from it. I know that people were sick from it. <coughs> it's not me not believing the science. My problem is what was the motive behind it? The fact the fact that it happened. And how quickly Christians were to abandon assembling themselves together. Yeah, I'm not just talking about Sundays and Wednesdays, just in general. I mean, it's a Man, scary. I mean, I never thought I'd see you that. And here we are, post post COVID, wondering how we got there and how we fix it. And now it exists. You know, but yeah. that's how everybody treats it. Yeah. So you know, all that said, we all have a role to play individually and as a group. And so we're here together as believers to be trained and equipped, to think about the stuff, to put it in our brains, to be encouraged and motivated, to be effective moving forward. And so get plugged in with a group that sharpens you. Get plugged in with a group that has expectations of growth and it doesn't fall into apathy. <coughs> people who love you, no matter what you have going on in your life, no matter how horrible I am, I know that there are people who love me and that is, there's comfort there. Uh, and that's who we're supposed to be as a body.